0: Well it was a while back um, and it was online that I spoke on the first four verses of Genesis chapter 13 and it was in these four verses just to refresh your memory that we saw Abraham he journeyed back from Egypt into the promised land after he'd been kicked out by the Pharaoh he had to make this long journey and he chose to return to the places that he knew the place where the Lord would have him to be and we can see Abraham's character, where he was in, this, in the third and the fourth verse, because he returned to the Lord. He returned back to the altar, back to the place where he had known and felt the promises of God, back to the place where he had worshipped God. And we're told in verse 4, he then called on the name of the Lord. This was a man he knew he'd transgressed. He knew he'd done wrong but he returned back. He sought God's mercy, he sought God's grace, and he, as it were, rededicated his life to him. He promised God that he would walk in his ways and he worshipped God for who he was. That's a very short summary of the first four verses. But perhaps before we look at the rest of the verses, verse 5 to 18, I think it's beneficial to remind ourselves of who Lot was Lot's reintroduced to us in chapter 13 in the first verse. And what do we know about Lot from the Bible? To me, in many ways, Lot appears to be a sort of a Samson figure. There are many things we learn about him that cause us to wonder, was he saved and how could he mess up so badly? After all, Lot was the man who drunkenly committed incest with his two daughters and he got them pregnant. Their descendants, their uh, two sons, uh, were called Moab and Ben Amni. And the descendants of those sons would go on to be the nations of Moab and the Ammonites. And you will know from 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, and many other parts of the Bible that these nations were often in conflict with Israel and the seed that Abraham would have. Lot was also the man who offered up his daughters to the men of Sodom to be raped. And he was a man who only very narrowly escaped the judgment that fell upon those wicked cities. I'm sure we're all very familiar with that story of Lot's wife who turned back to witness the destruction um, of Sodom and Gomorrah and was turned into a pillar of salt. He was a man who made many serious mistakes. In this chapter that we're going to be looking at today, we look and see the wrong choice that Lot made as he and Abraham divided their flocks and possessions. Yet, despite some of these awful and obvious sins, it's always worth remembering the words found in 2 Peter chapter 2 as we think about Lot. 2 Peter 2 Uh, He's talking about the Lord who turned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes. He condemned them to destruction, making an example to those who afterward would live ungodly. And then we read in verse 7, And he delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. Lot was a righteous man. We know that for a fact. He was a man whose faith and whose trust was in the one to come the Lord Jesus Christ. We know he was a man whose righteousness was given through the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's bear in mind that in spite of what we see about Lot from the next few chapters, he was a righteous man, but one who made mistakes. What we know about Lot by the beginning of this chapter is this. His life had been very heavily influenced by Abraham. In chapter 11, verse 28, we learn that his father had died, and it seems he was probably quite young. And in verse 31, we're told Abraham and his wife Sarai took him into their family where they looked after him, probably like the son they longed for. And it's fair to deduce that he and Abraham enjoyed a particularly warm and good relationship with each other, they were close, it was amicable. In fact in the next chapter in verse 16 it says Abraham he brought back his brother Lot. There was a close relationship between Abraham and Lot. Lot after all owed his faith in God and his knowledge of who God was to his uncle Abraham. Abraham he'd been a moon worshipper. He'd been ignorant of God along with the rest of his family until God revealed himself to him. But such was the profound effect Abraham had on Lot's life that when Abraham left Haran and all his family, Lot came with him. He could quite easily have stayed in Haran, in the place he knew, in the biggest, one of the biggest cities in the world of the time, with the rest of his family, that regular and familiar life. But Lot chose to leave with his uncle Abraham. Abraham. There was something about Abraham and what he had discovered about God that led him to choose to come. Accompany Abraham into the unknown, trusting only in the promise that God had set before him. And so as Lot travelled through the promised land with his uncle Abraham, he witnessed firsthand all that Abraham had been through. He would have heard first-hand accounts from Abraham of what the Lord had said to him, of the promises he had. He'd have been there, perhaps he helped construct the altars that Abraham made and worshipped the Lord with him. We don't know, but he would have been there and seen it all. Lot would have known the sharp pangs of hunger that they experienced when the drought hit the promised land. And he would have known the desperation that Abraham and Sarai felt as they went towards Egypt. He would have known what it was to be a starving migrant in a foreign land. He would have known Abraham's plan. He would have seen the great plagues and how God had caused it all to come about and expel Abram and Sarai out of Egypt. What I'm trying to demonstrate to you is that Lot was always around Abram. Watching, witnessing and learning from this great man of God and the relationship he had. He saw all this firsthand. But until the beginning of chapter 13, Lot has just been in the background. He's been just there he's not part of the narrative, but now he's brought back. And we're going to, co- as we come to this passage at verse five, we see that they'd returned into the promised land, and there was a new trial that was there. It was going to face both Abraham and Lot. They'd faced the trial of starvation in chapter 12, but there was a new trial. Lot, also who went with Abram, had flocks, herds, and tents. It wasn't Abram who was only the rich one who came out of Egypt. Lot was also rich. He'd experienced great physical blessings. He had flocks and herds and tents. Perhaps he wasn't as wealthy as Abram. There's no mention of silver and gold. But what he did have, he had plenty of. And it was this wealth that they both had that was to be the catalyst of the spiritual and physical trial to come. They were both about to face this trial of prosperity. And that's the first thing I'd like to look at with you this evening, the trial of prosperity. Now, maybe some of you are thinking to yourselves, well, if there's any trial I'd like to go through, the trial of prosperity... Sounds probably like the best one. To have plenty of money, no financial worries, the ability not to have your ideas, your inspirations limited by money, it hardly sounds like a trial to me, does it? And indeed, in a world where money is what is used in return for services, goods, and labour, nobody desires to be without money, do they? Uh, There's the old saying, money cannot buy you happiness, but it sure helps. It's how many people live today, isn't it, by that money, by that attitude. Thousands of lives are ruined by people seeking a quick buck, um, the gambling or the greed or the deceit from which they steal from others. And whilst most, most people probably don't have a gambling addiction, their lives are ruled by money, making repayments on lines of credit or saving up for the next big thing, working all those extra hours. We're often led, aren't we, to believe by adverts that if we just had a little bit more money, then all our problems would be solved. You see, prosperity is a trial because it tests the idols of our heart. This is important to understand because we often think of trials in our lives as trials of adversity, if I asked you to look back and to remember the trials you've had in your own lives, you probably remember times of great difficulty. Perhaps you were struggling with relationship with others, or you were a time of ill health or particular hardship. Abraham had faced a trial of adversity in Egypt. He'd been starving. He'd been a penniless immigrant. This adversity had exposed in him a fear and a lack of faith in God's provision. He'd reacted with anxiety and fear and light about his relationship to Sarai. But now his circumstances had fully changed around. He had an abundance of everything. Livestock, gold and silver. And Lot also had this abundance. He wanted for nothing. And he had an excess. An excess is something that Satan can often use to draw us away from God. You never hear anyone complain, do you, that they have too much money? You never hear anyone complain that life's too comfortable, that life's too easy. Yet, how often does this ease and this wealth lead to a lukewarm faith? We're swallowed up by the God of materialism. We forget those words in the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread. We don't rely on him because we are relying upon the things of this world it's a very subtle trial that the devil can use to great effect. It can result in apathy and I would suggest that it's probably one of the biggest trials to the church in this western world, in nations where we enjoy so much and have plenty. Prosperity and blessings that we enjoy can become obstacles for our spiritual growth. And you may not think of yourself as prosperous But how often does money or the thought of money dominate your mind and your thoughts? How often do you rely on God to provide on a daily basis rather than take the food you have, the income you have, the job and the peace you enjoy for granted? In the 30th proverb, it's Agar, prays in verse 8. He says, remove falsehood and lies far from me. Then he prays, Lord, give me neither poverty nor riches, but feed me with the food allotted to me. There is a trial of prosperity. And it was a particular test that both Abraham and Lot faced. We read the scenario for it in verses 6 and 7. Now the land was not able to support them that they might dwell together for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. The Canaanites and the Perizzites then dwelt in the land. There was a deterioration of relationships within the family as a result of their great wealth. Other men, through their quarrelsome behaviour, had dragged the close bond that Abraham shared with his nephew Lot into dispute. They both had so many livestock that they would need fresh ground for grazing. Fresh wa- uh, they would need water supplies. And the herdsmen were constantly arguing and coming into contention with each other. And this was threatening to spill into some serious violence. It's interesting, isn't it, at the end of verse 7 that Moses was the author of this chapter, it almost appears like a sentence that's out of place, just thrown in there. The Canaanites and the Perizzites then dwelt in the land. That's to emphasize to us how serious this strife was. They were surrounded by these warlike, these fearsome people, aggressive men. But the severity of their argument between them was so great that being surrounded by these men, who would wipe them out if they... Um, argued and separated it didn't stop the arguments these men were willing to snatch all their goods if they saw a bit of weakness but so consumed were the herders um, with their anger to one another that they were turning a blind eye to these enemies who surrounded them our lord he spoke in matthew 12 verse 25 you don't need to turn to it he said every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation and every city or house divided against itself will not stand. And so, in this trial of prosperity, it caused a rift in the family. And let's remember that we might not be surrounded by people who wish us physical harm, but we must always remember that the true Church of God, the family, God's people, brothers and sisters, are surrounded by the darkness of this world and the Prince of Darkness... There is nothing that Satan would love to see more than a divided church. He can enter into it then. He can wreak havoc and contention. In 1 Peter, he says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. When there's a rift there, Satan is almost guaranteed to be right behind that. And so Abraham was faced with a choice he could either preserve his finances or he could preserve his family relationship. Either Lot had to leave in order that his flocks could grow without hindrance or else he could provide for his relative and he could maintain the peace and harmony that he had so far enjoyed with his nephew. And so my second point is Abraham's choice. Finances or family. Family. In verse 4, Abraham had gone to the altar and he'd called on the name of the Lord. He'd put his trust in God. And here was the first testing of his character and faith after this. Was he going to forsake his nephew or was he going to forsake his finances? Well, in verses 8 and 9, we have the answer. So Abraham said to Lot, Please let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brethren. It is not the whole land before you. Please separate from me. If you take the left, then I will go to the right. Or, if you go to the right, then I will go to the left. Abraham knew that to separate was the only choice he had in order to resolve his situation. It was not necessarily an easy decision to make, between two men who had enjoyed a good relationship with each other and had been dragged into the disputes of other. But in order to prevent any future acrimony, Abraham magnanimously and he wisely said to Lot, we need to split and I want to let you choose where we split first. It was rather like what happens in our household um, when we were younger. If we had to divide a cake in three, one cut, two chose. And in that case... Everyone was happy, nobody could feel aggrieved. But what we must remember as we look at this is that Abraham was the senior partner in their relationship. In every single aspect of their lives. Abraham would have been well within his rights to have sent Lot away to fend for himself. Nobody would have criticised him. It was hardly like he was sending his nephew away destitute. If he went away with his own livestock, he could have looked after himself and um, he'd have eventually found some new lands and done the best he could. Um, But Abraham, as the senior partner, he was being more than just fair when he let Lot choose this land. Abraham was putting Lot first. He was willing to condescend himself before a man who was his junior in every single way. He forwent the privileges that were his by rights. We can see that by his choice, he was willing to lose out on his finances and his rights in order to ensure that he remained um, in a good relationship with Lot and that there was peace between them. And it says a lot for his motivation, does this choice. It wasn't a weakness on his behalf that he was a sentimental old bloke who didn't like to make tough decisions. His motivation was born out of a trust and a love in God. There was a few acres of grazing land. They were hardly worth fighting for, were they, when his eyes were firmly fixed on the internal perspectives and will of God. And because his eyes were fixed on God rather than the grazing land down there, and the promises that God had made to him at Bethel, he could renounce the things of this world that were temporary and that were passing. He could give them away sacrificially. And I think here we have a marvellous picture of what the Lord Jesus Christ did in his incarnation 2,000 years ago. In 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9, the Apostle Paul reminded believers at the church of Corinth of this truth. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that he was rich, and yet for your sakes he became poor, that you, through his poverty, might become rich. And then he goes on to describe this poverty, what the Lord Jesus Christ had done in that song found in Philippians 2, verses 5 to 8. Let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus, this motivation, who, being in the form of God, he did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. The Lord Jesus Christ, his eyes were firmly fixed on the task that God had given him. He didn't come to this earth and demand the worship that was his by right, the adoration. Um, Instead, he was the one who washed his disciples' feet and dealt so tenderly with those who were sick, those who were weaker than he was. He could have taken the best that this earth had to offer, and it still wouldn't have been enough. But instead, he was the one who came and was born in a manger, not a palace. It's an act of incredible generosity and benevolence that we see in his life. He renounced the finest things of heaven in order to carry out God's plan of salvation, in order that there may be peace between man and God. And he left the worship of heaven in order to be here on earth and to save his people. For us, though, the application is slightly different. It's through our behavior and our choices that we make to one another, that God is glorified in this way. Jesus was asked by a lawyer in Matthew 22, verse 35 to 39. He was asked this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbour as yourself. The second commandment, to love others as yourself, to give generously, to give sacrificially, cannot happen without the first commandment being obeyed. To give generously and painfully to ourselves, against to give to others beyond our own self-interest, it's not natural to us. We're selfish, we're sinful people who seek the best for ourselves. It can only be done when God has taken control of our lives, when we are walking in close fellowship with him, when he is our priority in life. And then it's only once we are like that that we can give freely and sacrificially like this. Abraham could do so because he loved the Lord God with all his heart. It was evidence in his actions here the Apostle Paul, he did something very similar. In Corinthians 9, verse 14 to 18, he says he could have drawn a wage for preaching the gospel of God, but he he waived his right, and he supported himself as he preached the gospel. So the challenge for us here this evening is this. Are you like Abraham? Is your wealth an instrument for God to use, something that you can give away sacrificially, Winningly and freely? Or do you seek after prosperity and comfort above all else? Do you keep these things for yourself? Because such an attitude can have massive consequences. If we look at the choice Lot had to make and his decision, as our third point, the choice between wealth or wisdom, we see the adverse effect that such selfishness can have. So Lot's ch- choice, it's found in verse 10 to 11. Lot lifted his eyes and he saw all the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt as you go towards Zoar. Then Lot chose for himself all the plain of Jordan, and Lot journeyed east, and they separated from each other. So having been given first choice we're told Lot lifted up his eyes they must have been on a raised area he looked all around him and he picked the finest the lushest looking land it was on the plain of Jordan to the east his motivation was solely drawn by the productive nature of the land what he saw it was right on the edge of the promised land and he looked, he saw it and he chose the very best for himself. We have no mention here of Lot speaking, seeking any spiritual insight. He didn't ask Abraham what he thought. Perhaps the fairest thing would have been to have chosen land to the north and the south. And then they could have had a bit of the good land each. Lot chose the best for himself. And in not seeking God's counsel or guidance in this. His spiritual eyes remained unopened. And Moses, he compares the land or says where it is uh, near three different places um, in verse 10 we're told it was on the plain of Jordan near Sodom and Gomorrah and it was like the land of Egypt and to anybody who reads that there shall be alarm bells going off in your minds at the mention of these three places the river it was by the In the plain of the Jordan, it's not immediately obvious, I don't think, is it, why this should be triggering alarm bells in our minds. But the Jordan often symbolises the last hurdle in life before the promised land. Um, The Israelites, they crossed over the river Jordan into Canaan. Uh, In hymnology, we sing, um, When I tread the verge of Jordan, bid my anxious fear subside, Death of deaths and kills destruction, land me safe on Canaan's side. It symbolises the last great enemy, just the River Jordan, quite often. But with his spiritual eyesight blinded, Lot didn't see that he was moving into this place of spiritual death. This land, Moses also informs the reader, was like the land of Egypt towards the Zohar. Where had Lot just come from with Abraham? They'd just come from the land of Egypt. And what had their experience been like there? Well, they'd made some quick and easy wealth, it was very pleasant they become it was relative ease there it was a land full of natural resources but egypt in the bible is often the place that's the opposite of submitting and trusting in god to provide moses as the author of this would have known much more than anyone how the children of israel they were in the wilderness and they were complaining we want the melons the cucumbers the leeks and the garlic of Egypt. We don't want this manna. We don't want God's ways. We want to go back to this land of plenty. It does seem that the painful lesson of Egypt that his uncle Abraham had learned was not yet one that Lot had learned for himself either. Thirdly, we're told this land, it was near Sodom and Gomorrah place that is synonymous with sin and fleshly evil this is the very first mention we had of Sodom in the Bible it's mentioned also in Ezekiel chapter 16 verse 49 the prophet tells us why this wicked um, these wicked cities rather were destroyed Ezekiel 16 verse 49 it says, he said this look this was the iniquity of your sister Sodom. She and her daughter had pride, fullness of food, and abundance of idleness. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and the needy. There was wealth, there was excess there, but that was the very nature of their downfall, their prosperity. And what the Lord desires for all people is wisdom from above. Luke 12:31 says, "We are to seek his kingdom, And then all these things will be added to us. Blot's decision, as we can see, was purely based on ease, comfort, and the motivation of many in the world today. Many people in this world, they're seeking the best experiences and sensations. Food, clothing, shelter, and much more. Um, This is what their minds are focused on. And without the spiritual wisdom that the Lord gives... They're all on this broad and easy road that leads to everlasting destruction. But I'd like to recall your attention back to my introduction. Lot was not a man of this world. He was not a worldly man who knew nothing of God. He was a believer. He was a righteous man. And his eyes were not blind to spiritual realities. He'd experienced God's guidance. He'd experienced a close relationship to God in his life. He'd worshipped him with Abraham. He'd been next to a man of great faith, and he indeed had demonstrated his faith um, when he left Haran and followed things that were invisible to the human eye. And so I think the most important lesson we can draw from this is that the believer can very easily be tempted by the trial of prosperity. Lot was not a new believer. He was not a weak believer, but he was tempted. He was drawn in by this trial of prosperity, And as a result, he was compromised. The temptations and the dangers that lay beyond this idyllic and fertile land were not visible to him on first inspection. And so, as we see, he was ever so slowly and almost imperceptibly drawn closer and closer to this wicked city of Sodom as his boundaries and his faith weakened. And this experience can often be ours. We can go to a good church. We can be surrounded by people of a very strong faith. We may have followed the Lord in faith through so much. And yet, compromise that leads to misery and failings are never far away. That tiny innocuous decision we make um, to take a second look. Or perhaps that great new job that requires, well, you might have to come in on Sunday it can very subtly lead us into greater and greater compromise and unhappiness. We track Lot's progression. In this chapter alone, we're told, he dwelt in the cities of the plain, and then he pitched his tent as far as Sodom. He moved from the edge of the promised land to Sodom. We then see in a couple of chapters later that he was in the councils of Sodom. Lot became a compromised Christian as a result of this. He was unable to escape the lure of riches. He was trapped in this wicked city of Sodom. We know he was unhappy at the wickedness that surrounded him, and yet he was so rooted to it because his prosperity was there and he'd followed it. And Satan knows what he's doing when he sends these trials to us. In Luke 4, verses 5 to 8, he tempted the Lord Jesus Christ with exactly the same trial, the trial of prosperity. Christ had been in the wilderness, fasting. He'd experienced hunger, just like Abraham had in Egypt. But then the devil took him up onto a mountain, and he offered him... It says, The devil, taking him up on a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, All this authority I will give you, and their glory, for this has been delivered to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you will worship me, all will be yours. Son of Man, Satan came to him. He said, you can have everything that the world offers. I'll give it all to you. All you have to do is worship me. And he knew that behind this subtle temptation was the the, um, temptation to avoid his agonizing death on the cross. He knew he had to face that. And the devil didn't mention that, But he was tempting him with this world's things, with an easy way out, um, in order to forgo that. And Christ, knowing how wicked the devil is and how devious he can be, he used words of scripture to answer the devil and to defeat him. He said, um, Get behind me, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. (coughs) And this is our only way to avoid the trial of prosperity. This is our way out when we are tempted with it. Through the closeness of our walk with God, through what we know in his word and what he tells us, and through prayer, temptation is resisted by knowledge of God. And what he offers us, our eyes are fixed on the future eternal prosperity and inheritance we have. If we are fixed on that, then the trials of prosperity... Can be avoided just like the Lord Jesus Christ avoided it. And so we have to challenge ourselves are we walking closely with the Lord at the moment? Are we reading our Bibles? Are we praying with Him? Are we asking Him to help us with each decision we make? Lot's decision was one that cost him everything. In the next chapter, we see he lost his possessions and his family. But what happened to Abram? Well, we've had two choices so far. The choice of Abram, the choice of Lot. And in this chapter, there's a final choice. It's found from verse 14 onwards. And the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift your eyes now and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward and westward. For all the land which you see I give to you and your descendants forever. And I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth. So that if a man could number the dust of the earth, then your descendants also could be numbered. Arise, walk in the land through its length and its width, for I give it to you. (coughs) This final choice was the choice of God. Abraham experienced great blessing and comfort an honour from the Lord for this. The Lord appeared to him again. He reaffirmed old promises, the promises of a land that he would give to him. And indeed, here we see an expansion of these promises. We learn more about what he was going to do. We see the vast scope of God's promises. The inherited land, it was going to be a massive area, as far northward, southward, eastward and westward. He could walk through it all. Far bigger than Abraham could have imagined. And not only that, But his descendants, the descendants from the son of promise who had not yet been born would go on to form a vast nation. There would be so numerous with his descendants that they would be more than the dust of the earth and you get a lot of dust. There would be millions and millions of these people. Those who walk in obedience to God and in the ways he leads us will never be the losers in life, even if the world thinks so. God provided for Abraham. In the final verse, we see that he moved Abraham. He guided him to where he wanted him to be. Abraham was led to the terebinth trees of Mamre, which were in Hebron. And once again, what did this godly man do? He built an altar to the Lord. He approached him in worship. He approached him in praise and thanked him for, who he, for the guidance he gave and praised him for who he was. The Lord God gave Abraham all that he could see. And I close with this thought, that the Christian also is the beneficiary of far more than they can see with these earthly eyes. The heavenly Canaan which Christ has gone to prepare for his people It's a place of untold glory, riches, joy, fullness, and life. And it's the inheritance for all those who walk in faith and obedience in this life. And so our challenge from this passage is this. Let's be like Abraham. Let's keep our spiritual eyes focused on the prize before the altar of God. Let's be in constant prayer. Let's be reading his word. And then the Lord God has promised that all these things will be ours and we'll be safe from the misery and the um, fall that came to Lot if we keep our eyes fixed on him. Amen.